because of the damage that the dengue and the complications had done, my body was literally, literally starting to kill me. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Manisha Takur. Manisha, are you ready to join the mission? I'm ready to join the mission, Andrew. <laughs> I'm excited to learn more about you, but let me introduce you to the audience. Manisha has worked in financial services for over 30 years with a focus on women's economic empowerment. A nationally recognized thought leader around the issues of financial literacy and education, Manisha has been featured in national media such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Barron, CNN, and CNBC. She has written two personal finance books for women in their 20s and 30s, and her latest book, Money Zen, The Secret to Finding Your Enough, comes out on August 8th, 2023. Manisha earned her MBA from Harvard Business School, her BA from Wellesley College, and holds the CFA and CFP designation. My goodness, Manisha, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. Well, I think I have a lesson that can help hopefully many people of all ages, but I definitely know it is very applicable to those in their 20s and 30s. And it's a screw up that when I look back and I run the NPV on it, I can see just how big it is. So let me set the stage a little bit. I am 53 now, but growing up, I lived in a small town in Indiana and I was mixed race and there weren't a lot of half Indian girls named Manisha in the Midwest. <laughs> and growing up, I got picked on a lot, particularly in grades four, five, and six. And you might think, well, what the heck does this have to do with anything? Well, it turns out that things that happen to us before age 25 are often called small T traumas. And when you look at them or talk about them in retrospect, they can seem so minuscule, but they often drive us to engage in a pattern of behavior that ultimately can be very destructive. And that was the case with me. I look back and, you know, today they'd call it bullying and imagine it's only worse given social media, but those formative years put me on this path. And I wanted to find some place of belonging. And what I found was the cheerleaders and football players didn't like me, but the teachers did because I worked hard and I got good grades. And so I started to get that, you know, endorphin high from teachers approvals and getting grades. So, you know, kept going, kept going. I kept studying, going after those grades because they made me feel whole and worth something in a way that I didn't feel socially. And so 
I then proceed into, you know, the world of finance and what happens there, there aren't teachers in grades, they're bosses and money. And so I just, I developed ultimately a profoundly toxic relationship with work, money, success, and accomplishments because for all the education I received and all the accomplishments I was achieving in work, I had come to identify my self-worth in my school years with grades and in my professional years with my net worth. Mm. And when you live your life to optimize the equation self-worth equals net worth, you can start doing some pretty dangerous things to yourself. And this is where some of the the lessons start to bubble up. So in my 30s, I can remember I was on a plane from Houston to New York. I was sitting in seat 1B. I had pitched about six years earlier an idea to my boss, who at that time was the founder and owner of a firm that had 50 billion in assets under management. And it was an idea for a new distribution channel. And the idea was historically our clients were institutional corporations, endowments, foundations. We managed a lot of pension money and we had a great investment philosophy. And I wanted to bring it to individuals who couldn't afford our, you know, $50 million minimums for institutional (laughs) accounts. And so I pitched a separately managed account business and he said, sure, go for it. And your resources, uh, yeah, they're yourself. (laughs) Do what you can with it, kiddo. And so I started running and running and running. And because I was so locked into my identity and sense of self-worth being my achievements at work, I... I didn't have friends. I didn't have hobbies. I worked seven days a week. I traveled 40 weeks a year for a decade. I was on planes just nonstop. And so on this day, I'm sitting there in in 1B and I have tears streaming down my face and I have piles of paper on my small little tray in front of me that I'm trying to balance. I got my HP12C calculator that I'm trying to run my calculations on. And all I can think of is I have no idea on God's green earth how I'm going to make it through the next 48 hours of meetings because I, I have nothing left. And a woman, I'd noticed her before. She was sitting back in 4B and I'd seen her at industry conferences. She was so elegant and senior and, you know, had what I call wealthy woman hair, perfectly coiffed. And, you know, she was wearing this Chanel shoes and the Armani suit. And I don't mean from the department store. I mean, like Armani from the boutique. And she came and she gave me this look like she knew what I was going through. I didn't even know her name at this time. And she opened this silver pill case engraved, probably Cartier, clearly really expensive. She pulls out these three yellow pills and she hands them to me and she says, take just a half to start. And then if you can tolerate it, you can take a whole one tomorrow. 
And I mean, I just grabbed at it like candy and it helped. I was able to calm down, took another one the next morning. I made it through my meetings. What I realized later was that I never even asked her what it was that I was putting in my mouth. It turned out it was Valium. And as I learned, lots of folks in the financial services industry are no strangers to benzodiazepines, all Mm. sorts of anti-anxiety drugs, many of which can be addictive over the long run. But that was sort of my entree. I call into the cult of never enough, where I learned by example, that when you think you can't go on anymore, you do whatever you need to do. You sacrifice happiness, family, health. You just keep going, going, going. And I kept doing this until I had not one, but two near-death experiences. And I'll describe the most colorful one to you, which was I was, I had been married, got divorced because I was always working, which doesn't make for a very good spouse. Mm. But my ex-husband was an off-road motorcyclist. And so we were in the wilds, literally in the jungle in Laos. And I was riding two up on the back of his motorcycle. Of course, I was not looking around at the jungle because I had earbuds and I was listening to, you know, literally getting things done by David Allen on audiobook as we're in the jungle. <laughs> Our last day we're in Vientiane in capital city. And we have, I'd been very diligent about applying bug spray the entire time we were in the jungle. But the day we got back, I'm like, oh, thank God I can get back on my computer and start doing work. And I was out in a cafe and it was sweaty and I didn't reapply as often as I typically would. Dengue. And I got, I got it. Yes. And it's called breakbone fever for a reason. It literally feels like somebody is crushing your bones, but I didn't know it until I got back to the U S I happened to be in the Southwest doing pitch a presentation. And I got back out. I hadn't been feeling good that day, but I thought, well, you know, often I'm not feeling well because I sleep Mm. six hours a night and I work all the time. But I got to the car and I just, I started to feel woozy. And at this point, my ex and I were living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I literally have no memory of getting myself from outside that office complex to the airport in Houston, onto the plane to the airport in Albuquerque and taking the hour drive back to Santa Fe. When I arrived, I had 102 degree fever and I pretty much collapsed. And I was taken to the small hospital in Santa Fe where it never occurred to anybody there to ask me if I had recently been out of the country. So they have no idea what's wrong with me. And long story short, I had some exceptionally severe complications. So you know, you get malaria or dengue and everything goes well, you feel horrible for a period of time, and then you're weak as you're recovering. But when you get complications, one of the big fears is organ failure. And that was the direction I was heading. And so it got, I was in the hospital for 
seven or so days. And they finally said, we need to call your family in. And so my family came and I can remember this day just so clearly thinking, oh my God, it's true. At this point, I was in tremendous pain in a variety of different ways. But I, in particular, remember I kept getting these deeply cold chills, like a cartoon character. My teeth were chattering, chattering, chattering. I literally didn't know that teeth could truly chatter like that so much. And I was just shivering and tears started streaming down my face as I thought, oh my God, it, it's true. The cliche, you don't think I wish I had spent more time in the office. You don't. And I, I just remember thinking, you know, how much I wish I'd spent more time with my family and how I wish I hadn't missed my grandmother's funeral because I had meetings that were so important. I now can't even remember what they are, how many weddings of friends I never showed up for. And then I took a turn and I started to get better. And it took no more than about 10 days for me. I'm still on bed rest to have my secretary back at my side planning how I'm going to maximize the next three months of bed rest so I can get back on the road again. And I'm telling this because you'd think I learned, you'd think I'd understand, but I had, I continued on this path for about another seven years when finally I got the big wake up call which was that I started to not be Excuse able me, to that stay was awake. already a huge wake up call yeah, no, for most and, people. And now it's like, that wasn't enough. All right. Well, what's the big we, one? I got to this point where I literally could only stay awake about five to six hours a day. If I was on the road doing a meeting, I would do the meeting and I'd have to go immediately back to the hotel and sleep to the next one. If I was in the office, I would meet with a client. Then I'd go into the room that was set aside for women to pump for breast milk. And I would curl up in a ball on the floor and lie down. Ultimately, it turned out I developed these huge red welts all over my body everywhere. And it hurt. Like my whole body felt like it was on fire. And it turned out I had severe inflammation. There's many ways to measure inflammation. One is called a SED rate. SED rate of 1 to 20 is normal. A SED rate above 100 is indicative of tumor malignancy. And mine was 95. Mm. And after running all these tests, what they concluded was that my body was attacking itself. And because of the damage that the dengue and the complications had done, my body was literally, literally starting to kill me. And it was the mother of all wake-up calls because this time it took nine months in order for me to get my energy back. Mm. And what I realized as I came out of that and this was now at age 49, was to realize that I had spent the entirety of my adult life on this 24-7 hamster wheel of hustle culture. And because I was so driven going back to my youth by this mental model of self-worth equals net worth, and the problem with that is that there's no 
end line to that, you just keep running and running and the finish line keeps moving. You could always make more, always achieve more, always bring in more business. And what I finally realized after nearly nine months of medical leave and recuperation was that I had missed the biggest mistake of my entire career. And I should have known this because I'm an investor. I understand the power of compounding. What I did not understand was the power of the net present value of our future earnings. And when you run yourself down to the bone the way I had, I was 50 and there was nothing left, Mm. nothing left in the tank. Now, at the same time, four of my girlfriends had become presidents or CEOs of large asset management firms Mm. with, you know, as you might imagine, large salaries. Mm. The guy who sat in the row in front of me at Harvard Business School, well, his name's Andy Jassy and he became the CEO of Amazon. And I'm sitting here literally unable to put in the amount of energy and to maintain a job that, I'll put it differently, when I first came back, the level of work that I was doing would pay me in a year what I used to make in six weeks. And what I was making in a year when I came back was still Mm. fine. You know, it was a very nice number, but the money that I was making in my peak was a much bigger number. And even more than that, I was coming into my own in terms of my knowledge and what my future earning potential could be, but I I blew it up because I, I ran my engine out. And so one of the things I like to tell people particularly in their early years and particularly women, because I believe we're extra prone, especially when we're in very male dominated businesses to feel like we have to really extra prove ourselves, never make a mistake, always be the first one in, always be the last one out. And the thing that I realize is you may think what's going to make your life is some big investment. You're going to be the the first one to have discovered, well, Amazon stock, Mm. you know, or you think you're going to make some great investment with real estate or today, you know, you think you're going to be brilliant around, you know, the crypto world. But what we have that is entirely our own and we have enormous control over, which of course, with most investments, you don't have enormous control over, is our brains and the way we use them to generate our future income. Mm. And when you underestimate the net present value of your future earnings, because you are running so fast to maximize a toxic, but highly socially approved equation, like self-worth equals net worth, Mm -hmm. you ultimately will smash into a wall at some point in some way. Maybe it won't be a mosquito. Maybe you won't end up with red welts on you, but something will come Mm -hmm. and stop you in your tracks. And 
not only will that cause you to leave money on the table, lower your return on investment, if you will, on your education and the time spent in those early years, but you leave emotional wealth on the table because you never had any time to invest in that bucket, that portion of your life. That same year that, you know, when I was sick, that that holiday season, I realized the only people who sent me holiday cards by this point were people I paid. It was like my hairdresser, the woman who cleaned my house. I mean, everybody else had dropped me off their holiday card lists because I was a human doing. Mm-hmm. I was not a human being. <laughs> I never heard that. We live in a culture that tells us that the answer to whatever ails us can be solved with more, Mm. doing more, earning more, being more. And what I want young people and young women in particular to know is that investing concurrently in your financial health and your emotional wealth, that is the secret formula to maximizing the NPV of your potential future earning stream. Mm. And when you don't invest in that emotional wealth bucket, which includes everything from taking care of yourself to having some hobbies to doing things outside of the workplace and all you do and in the investment world, because it's, the market is always open somewhere, 24, you know, hours a day, you can be active. And so particularly in the investment world, I worry very much. And I want people in their 20s and 30s to avoid the mistake that I made Mm -hmm. and not to underestimate the incredible power of the net present value of your future earnings and to be protecting that and think about the risk and you're taking around that because Mm. the rewards can be great if you do it right, which I didn't for the first 30 years. Wow. I think about the lyrics of a song that comes from one of the most iconic albums of all time, still top seller after many years. And it says, you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. For all the obsessive people out there, you know, all of us, you know, many of us have an obsessive streak. You know, this is a great example of how we can get on that roller coaster and you know, it's exciting in the beginning, but then it can terrorize you. And, you know, I think my my takeaway from this too is that I I went through addiction when I was young. And that's why I, I, you know, when I heard about the pills, when you said about the pills, I thought about that. But luckily I got into treatment and rehab at a young age and I got clean and sober and into a 12-step program when I was 17. I moved to Thailand when I was about 27. So I'd already been 10 years sober by the time I arrived. And now I'm more than 40 years sober. So I built my whole career in, you know, in finance. I have my obsessions for sure, 
But the thing is, is that I never, I never worked past 6 p.m. And I was still voted number one analyst in Thailand. I was still head of research at the number one foreign broker at the time and still had a very successful career. I mean, I, I worked a lot. I wouldn't deny it. I worked on Saturdays and Sundays. I taught a lot because I enjoyed that. But the, the point is, for anybody listening to this, you do not have to, you know, it's internally driven. And if someone is externally driving you to work seven days a week, something's wrong and you've got to get away from that. But for most of us, and as you've just explained, you didn't tell anything about, well, my boss said this and I had to do no. this. No, it was all internally driven. And so that's the first thing I want everybody to think about is that you don't have to, you know, obsess. Now you, you mentioned David Allen and he was kind of the, the king of his book, you know, about getting things done. And, you know, really he was an, he was a guest on episode number three, nine, four on the podcast. And it's worth going back and listening to him because he talked about when pressure is on step back and take time. Yeah. And you also reminded me of one of my first guests, episode 28, Brandon Gailey, who got a sickness that required that he sleep at least 12 hours a day or he would die. And he had to reshape his life on only being able to work about four hours a day and take care of his family with the money that he generated from those four hours. And that's another episode that, you know, you made me think about. So, so many things, anything you would add to my observations. Yeah, you know, I would just say, Andrew, that this is highly common, I find, amongst those of us in finance. But what happened to me made me want to dive in and research how do how do smart people like us end up doing this to ourselves and how can we prevent it going forward? And that's the research I did to write my latest book. It is not a personal finance primer. Money's in the Secret to Finding Your Enough is actually a combination of my journey, which I go into in much more raw and candid detail, along with the journey of many other people who have struggled with this kind of never enough mindset around money, work, accomplishments, you fill in the blank, and interdisciplinary experts. And his what I found out was that there are so many paths that can lead us to this point. And almost all of them are internally generated. And until you understand that, all the sorts of things that you, you hear, wellness at work, meditate, take deep breaths, walk in the grass, and you know read positive psychology books, those things aren't going to help you get balance if you're out of balance to solve the problem of why you are so internally driven to the point of making yourself ill, you have to understand the root causes that can bring you there. And that's why I wrote this book. And that's what's helped transform my life is mm. really seeing whether it's small T traumas or societal influences or cultural norms or even evolutionary biological impacts. Those are the four big categories that tend to drive our never enough behaviors. If you want to make the most of the NPV of your future earnings, you want to avoid the mistake that I've described here. And I think that's my next chapter in life, Andrew, is to spread the message. 
about helping people find their enough, stop work at six like you, you still can accomplish wonderful things. <laughs> you don't need to kill yourself. You can accomplish literally. more. Yeah. Because oh, you're not destroying yourself, you know. That's the whole point. Yeah. When you don't destroy yourself, you're at your best. Yeah. So just for the listeners out there, this is, you know, a great resource. And I'm just going to read something out of it. It's just that if you've ever thought it's never enough or I'm never enough when it comes to money, work or success, money Zen is your cure. No matter your age, income or profession in today's fast paced status conscious world, it's all too easy to get sucked into the cult of never enough, that painful place where no matter how much you earn, accomplishments you achieve, or praise you receive, you feel you can never do enough, have enough, or be enough. Ladies and gentlemen, it's on. I'm going to have a link in the show notes, and it's uh, coming out on August 8th. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. And you can get it on, uh, I see it. You're, you've got it in Audible and Kindle coming out. So get it on uh, Amazon or other places. I'll have all the links in the show notes. Let me ask you, Manisha, what, what is your number one goal for the next 12 months? To achieve less. <laughs> Which seems like a you know crazy goal, but for someone like you and someone like me and our obsessive behaviors, that is the ultimate challenge. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And I also want to thank you for joining the mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Harvard has nothing on us. Do you have any parting words for the audience? If people think that this may be a problem for them, but they're not quite sure. I put together a really fun quiz at moneyzenquiz.com. Seven questions, check it out and see if you've gone down the rabbit hole yet. I want to help pull you out. Perfect. And we'll have links to that in the show notes and everything else that we've talked about. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on The Upside.